Right, so, if you were to count up all the cells in your body, only about 25% of them would be you. Hey. Yeah, the rest of you is, is bacteria. Yeah, but not you, Dave, you're much cleaner. Um, no. <laughs> Very much. I know some stuff about Dave <laughs> that seriously calls Semi- that into question. <laughs> Welcome to Sustainababble Thingy. We don't know. Sustainababble Thingy. We don't know because by the time you were listening to this, it's the future. And we recorded this in the past. We recorded this before that thing happened that everyone's talking about, which we don't know what it is. Yeah, and then the other thing, (laughs) and then some other things. Back at the very start of May, we had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful chat with a guy called Vibar Cregan-Reed, which is a funny old name that I couldn't say, as you will hear in a minute, but I can now say who he of. He is an academic and author and very, very nice bloke, very I nice can tell bloke. you for, for certain. Uh, and he's written uh, two, two books. One is out just about now, uh, which is called Primate Change and is all about how this modern world that we've created is in turn changing us, changing humans. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff which we get into in the interview. Uh, and his first book uh, was called Footnotes, which is all about how running makes us what we are, how human beings have been running for a very, very long time and not running is strange. Um, so we talk about all of those things and more. Yeah, we talk about poo transplants. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, the obvious next choice. The obvious next choice. And we talk about how the babble is recorded, ironically enough, in the least environmentally conducive environment it is possible to hear of. Yeah, I, I, I read footnotes back in my one of my cold, dark winter retreats in January in Shetland. Absolutely loved it. It's a beautiful book. Um, uh, go and read it and read his new book as well. I think you'll love it. I think you'll love him. I think you'll love this chat. Uh, we we love doing it. Just the usual disclaimer before any of that, we are your friendly little podcast all about people and the planet and why despite everything it's alright to have a chuckle every now and then, In we all? We are. Yes, uh, but we do work for environmental charities but these are very, very, very much our own views or at least we did work we, yeah. <laughs> for environmental charities at the time of recording this. I wonder what we're doing now. God knows what we're doing now. Uh, so anyway, if you've got any beef with anything that me or Im or Vibar says, take it up with me or Im or Vibar. Not with anyone for whom we did work, may work in the future or currently work at the time of recording. Yes? Absolutely. So this is us chatting to Vibar, Craig and Reed, and I hope you enjoy it. It is a brilliant chat with a brilliant person. So, hello Vibar. He's got it wrong. You got it wrong straight. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. That's what you said. No, that's what I said. Uh, hello. Could you please clarify? Get away from the microphone. Could you clarify, please, Vibar, what the hell your name's all about? Vibar. That's correct. Vibar. Yeah. Um, Vibar. My name is... I, well, I mean, the truth is I don't really know about my name. Um, it's sort of Irish. 
Um, my dad used to tell me that there was a an Irish King Vibar. He also told me that um, uh, Vibar was an anglicisation of an uh, Irish name, Finbar, which is you know it's about as common as the name Graham, I suppose. I don't, you know, it's 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 uh, Irish people do know people called Finbar. Um, which had me sort of thinking, well, if it's an anglicisation, why was an Irish king called Vibar? Anyway, there's no one else called Vibar. There is just, there's just me. If you put Vibar into Google, you get me and an industrial wax polymer. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's I, when people ask, and people ask me every single day. In, in fact, I think you're the first people to ask me today. So um, uh, that's what I say. I say it's a sort of Irish name, but it's, it's the, yeah, there's only me, Vibar. Well, she'll have to get used to calling you Rodney. Thank you. Yeah, Basil, you're going to get this meeting started. Me and Dave ain't got all night. So you've written this uh, very well-acclaimed book called Footnotes, uh, How Running Makes Us Human. Got one in front of us here. Um, and a lot of that uh, talks about the, the the sort of meditative value almost that comes from from just regularly running. Could you expand on that a little bit and and... Also, how I mean, given this as an environment podcast, the role that the external world and, the, and nature plays in in, in all, the, all of that. I wanted to write a book about what it was to be a really normal runner, somebody that doesn't run in uh, lots of races. Um, I've um, you know I've I've only ever run in one race since I left school. I think um, you know. And it's not even formally a race, to be honest. But uh, so I wanted to write something about the normal everyday experience of running and being an academic. You know, I always want to think, oh, isn't this very interesting? Let's really get 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 behind this, you know, normal everyday activity. Um, so I sort of wanted to do that. And then, uh, God, I was really rewarded. There was so much more to this uh really just mundane boring everyday experience that lots of people enjoy um and what i increasingly found was to answer your second question what i increasingly found was was that the environment um plays this huge role not only in the quality of our experience during exercise but in the quality of our experience uh, uh generally that there's a sort of uh, our bodies are more permeable to the environment than I think we we often uh, believe them to be. That they they change how we experience um, not only places but but you know ourselves and our bodies. So it seems to me that there's there isn't really any separation between the two things. R- running is inherently about the environment in which the running is performed. So does that mean that our experience of running on a treadmill in a gym full of sweaty people um, looking at reflections of themselves in a window and thinking, yeah, uh, is slightly less rewarding perhaps than running through a forest or, or a park or, or just down the street in an in a urban setting? Are they different things and they're giving us different stimulus? Yeah, they are. So that, that all of those things are different, whether it's an urban street, whether it's a forest or whether it's a, a park or whether it's a treadmill. But treadmills really uh, divide people. So I think... I don't know. I think I think most people, about seventy percent of people, just hate them and just see them as being sort of mechanical and narcissistic and 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 part of a whole sort of gym culture that so many people um, want to uh, reject. And I think I think about seventy percent of me feels that way too. <laughs> uh, You've got that, that wonderful bit in the book where you uh, you have the 
sort of the, the industrial origins of it or the mm. what's that? no no it's, yeah. it's much worse than that oh, right, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. so the treadmill the treadmill was invented because at the end of the 18th century <laughs> they decided that it wasn't really appropriate anymore to put people to death for stealing a loaf of bread and for about a hundred years uh, the treadmill is what you were given to do if they didn't think it was possible for you to be put to death but they wanted to make life completely you know, impossible and horrendous. So Oscar Wilde was put on a treadmill in 1895 when he got done. So he was on a treadmill for about six hours a day, some days. So you'd have, you wouldn't be able to talk to fellow inmates. It, you know, it was, it was awful. You know, you weren't allowed to talk. It would be done in silence. Uh, Oscar Wilde came out of prison, I think, in 1898. He was dead in 1900 and he was younger than me. He was about 48 or something. Uh, So it killed him. There are levels of what environmental psychologists call immersion, so that the the depth with which you immerse yourself in your surroundings. So level one immersion would be if there was something as nice as a window or even a picture in this room, then we would have level one immersion with nature. Sorry about that. (laughs) He's having a go at our facility. (laughs) Um, so perhaps there's a nice TV screen here, perhaps, you know, so if we had pictures of natural environment on the TV screen, that would be categorised as level one. What we have is level zero, basically the same as... You're welcome. Yeah, uh, basically the same as as Oscar Wilde would have done. Um, Level two is when you go into a natural environment, but you're not directly engaged with it. So if you go and, I don't know, um, sit in a park and read a paper... Um, and then level three immersion is when you get your hands dirty. It's when you actually touch it. It's when you actually engage with it. So it's like when you're climbing a tree. So the benefit, the benefits of being in natural environments are um, uh, loquacious. They are manifold. They are they are really really um, they're really powerful as well. Um, so if you go to go and run on a, t- a treadmill, you're basically denying yourself. You're getting zero immersion in the natural environment, so you're not going to get the the, the psychological benefits of that you get from natural environments. Uh, you're not going to get any any sort of empathetic effects with the natural environment because you're in a gym. Um, but literally, if you if there was just like a like a pot plant and some pot plants around, it just nearby, or maybe a, a picture of a park on on the treadmill, anything that would provide just the the, the sort of the, the, the basic imagery of natural environments would mean that the, the levels of environmental immersion would go up even on a treadmill. So they are really shit and they don't, they don't have to be so shit as they are. That's what really annoys me. Tell us a bit more about what those benefits are. Because, yeah, we go for runs, don't we all? Not together. No, but I mean, I would if you if you're if you're asked. No, but, um, ten years younger than me, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, but what are the what other kind of benefits do you get? Because you get happy, you know that. Like I used to live near some green. I don't live near some green anymore. I go running in that green. It was nice, nice green, made me happy. Um, go running down the old Kent Road, not nice. That's mostly due to breathing in the wrong end of a bus. Anyway, I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> 
Tell us what the benefits are. <laughs> okay, well, answer my question. If you run down the Old Kent Road, uh, you you will get lots of benefits. You will it will still be really really good for you. So uh, uh, people get happy when they run because of all kinds of neurotransmitters that, that are released in the blood and in the in the brain. Um, but that's not the only reason why they 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 get happy. Um, there was a trial, there was a really fascinating trial done in um, Ann Arbor in Michigan um, where the uh, environmental psychologists were trying to work out which, um, what activities people could do to restore, uh, they call it directed attention, but it's basically just your ability to concentrate. We've all had that thing, you know, when you've been like gaming for four or five hours and you just think, you know, I can't, you know, and you've just gone and you need to rest. So um, directed attention or concentration is like, um, it's like a muscle. Um, You can't, well, it's, I mean, it's not like a muscle because you can't make it stronger, but it's like a muscle insofar as, you know, if you were lifting, um, uh, uh, I don't know, something like a a pint of Guinness, if you're lifting a pint of Guinness, you could do it a hundred, maybe 200 times and it'd be very, very easy. But after that, even though it's not a heavy weight, your arm would probably start to get tired and the only way in which you can get that muscle back online once it's exhausted is just to rest it but it turns out so our brain is like that our ability to concentrate is just like that um and it turns out that um if you go to a natural environment that will restore your directed attention much more quickly than an urban one. Environmental psychology is an, it's a sort of newish, um, uh, newish uh, discipline. But as an outsider, when you read the abstracts of any of their articles, like we put hospital, we put house plants in people's hospital rooms to see if they would recover quickly, and you just think, yeah, they did. And then you read the abstract, and sure enough, they did. All of the outcomes of the trials, they are always the same. We sent people to, you know, uh, I don't know, some hotel in downtown, what's the, what, you know, t- uh, to see what group dynamics would be like. And then we sent another group to uh, Niagara Falls, and it's always the same outcome. Nature always works better. So the uh, why people were restored more quickly by uh, the natural environments, they don't know. They don't actually know, but... But what they think is that we have been in and around natural environments for 2.3 million years. And that's just hominins, you know, and whoever we were before hominins like, I don't know, um, Selanthropus chedensis uh, from... S- yeah, 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 no, I remember, yeah, now yeah, you yeah, say yeah. it, I remember it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had one of them on our podcast, <laughs> That's that's uh, that's a hominin from about six million, six point three million years ago, I think. For a long time, the brains of mammals have been around natural environments for for a really, really longer than we will ever know, and parts of our brain are much, much older. They're certainly a lot more uh, older than modern humans are. Parts of our brains, you know, are you know tens and hundreds. Yeah, hundreds of millions of years old. And so they think that it's just, it's simply evolution, that this is, there's, there's, there are aspects to our psychology that are, uh, that feel at home in green spaces. And there's also this thing about the colour green as well. You know, green is the, is the room temperature of our visual spectrum. It's the absolute middle of our of our visual spe- spectrum it's the it's the um it's the color that our eyes have to do least work 
to process. And we can see more shades of it than any other colour. So, um, uh, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Good fact. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Bessie, I don't want to be pedantic or anything, but the colour of gold is gold. That's why it's called gold. What you have discovered, if it has a name, is some green. So that's really, um, that's fascinating, isn't it? And it makes you think about... Um, I hope so. It makes you think... It makes you worry about people who don't get into that sort of space then, doesn't it? Like people who live in tower blocks in the middle of cities. And, even, OK, you could put pot plants around, right? But is there, is there something that we should have some sort of right? You know, should it be a societal right to be able to go into nature and be part of it? Is that the implication of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe we can come back to pot plants. I think pot plants are... are are, are really interesting. Um, do, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this week's sustainable. <laughs> Is there one in here? No, there isn't. There isn't. No, Cosmo. There's no light in here. Um, <laughs> Listen, if, you, if people donate to this podcast, you know, with a bit more enthusiasm, maybe we can get a pot plant and, uh, and <laughs> lighten up the experience for our guests. Oh, yeah. in, oh, until bad. then... <laughs> I'll sort you out with this a Senecio hairy anus. <laughs> there you go. Board, green board rubber. It's as good as. It's as good as. I've lost my train of thought. So you're writing uh, a new book at, at the moment. Uh, oh, I am. Uh, which, which you can tell us about in, in great detail. But, uh, as, as, I, um, as I listen to you talk, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute the these trends that have got us to this place where lots of people aren't in a natural environment they're in an urban environment are intensifying we know that across the world more and more people are moving to cities fewer people are living in the countryside so it's it's going to get worse isn't it in it's terms gonna of get being, worse. yeah you know and, and i am as people listen to this podcast now prone to a bit of uh, uh of sodding, cat- sodding misery <laughs> catastrophizing but but how does it I mean, how how do you process this idea that for millions of years we've been quite happily pootling along with trees around us and then in a blink of an eye we're all surrounded by concrete and that's going to get more so. So are we all going to become miserable? I've got this statistic in my new book. Um, it's it's not, you know, there's a lot of lead, there's a lot of run up to the, uh, the statistic. But if you think about the vehemence with which you know, deaths by terrorism are reported in this country since um, since 2000, uh, which takes in all of the big uh, attacks that we've had, the London Bridge attack, uh, 7-7, the Manchester Arena attack, the total number of deaths, I can't remember the number, I think it's about 88. Um, the most conservative estimate of the people that have died since 2000 uh, as a result of poor air quality, the most conservative estimate, is um, half a million people. Wow. You know, 500,000 people. and Which you it, don't see on the news no. and you don't see... Yeah, because yeah. you can't point to them. You can't point to an individual's death certificate and, see, and say, look, air pollution did that because it's stroke or or heart disease or lung cancer or something yeah but you know every time i come into central london so i worry about you guys who work actually in central london and you're breathing this all of the time hey yeah (laughs) yes at least least we don't go for runs in it yeah yeah. 
Um, and, and one of the um, so tell us a bit more about what your, what your new book's called, but kind of what it what it's about because I think you've started to hint on this idea that we're being changed by the soup that we're creating around us. So the new book is called Primate Change: How the World We Made Is Remaking Us. That's a pun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Primate Change: How the World We Made Is Remaking change. Us. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, thank you, yeah. thank you, Dave. Yeah, Primate Change. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It rhymes, it rhymes with climate change. Right, yeah. Climate. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the working title for it was The Anthropocene Body, but <laughs> the, the publisher just said, yeah, no, we're not calling it that. Uh, so we came up with climate change, how the world we made is, is remaking us. Um, it's out on the 20th of um, September. And it's basically about how, you know, lots of environmental uh, debate uh, is quite rightly about what is being done um, uh, to the planet. You know, where the the the, um, the new geological epoch of the Anthropocene is going to be declared in what a year, eighteen months. Explain what that is. How much do you want to know? <coughs> so the <laughs> Ollie's prone to freaking out. So. Okay, yeah. um, this is all, there's a lot of misery in this. You're going to like it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Um, so about 12,000 years ago, we passed over from the Pleistocene um, into the Holocene. So the Holocene uh, began about 11,700 years ago. And the Holocene is basically the end of the huge ice ages that we had for a really, really long time. It's the reason that we evolved in Afri- Africa, because everywhere else was freezing. <laughs> so the Pleistocene was about two and a half million years long, I think. We're about 12,000 years into the Holocene, and it's about to be redeclared by the International Union of Geological Sciences. I think it's about to be declared the Anthropocene because there's evidence of um, human impact on the planet all over, all over the planet. So there are, um, uh, we eat billions, billions of chickens each year, so chicken bones are becoming a permanent part of the fossil record. Uh, radio, radioactive isotopes uh, from nuclear testing are found all over the planet. Um, all, all kinds plastic. of... Plastic, bits of plastic found all over the yeah, planet. Yeah, yeah, plastic pollution is quite a, quite a, quite a big one. Um, but you're talking about the idea that if, if 100 million years from now, so a future geologist went back to the year 2018, 2019, they would see a point at which the planet started to just look different geologically because well, of what we've done to it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So the Anthropocene is going to be um, declared a new geological era, and it's basically um, the Earth is characterised by um, human... Uh, habitation and endeavour. But it's, you know, worrying statistics about urban life. Um, It's estimated that by 2100, uh, there could be up to 16 billion of us. There's no way. There's no way we're going to... I just can't see that future. I'm going to go. They're trying to cure death as well, you know. They're trying to stop it, like make it so you can't die. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, lots of my book actually is about how to live longer. Maybe that's not such a good idea. (laughs) So how's this changing us on an an individual level then? Because is that uh, the focus of your book is is about how 
how humans are being changed by the modern world we've created is that right yeah so um the book goes through several phases and looks at um how uh, the agricultural revolution when when we stopped walking and and hunting and gathering and focused more on on growing um so for example how the agricultural revolution meant that we shrank we shrank in height by about five six inches um uh at that point our why You'll have to read the book, mate. Okay, so, fair enough. Um, fair enough. <laughs> uh, it's quality of food. So the quality of, uh, basically it means that the food that we grew uh, was uh, shitter than the the food that we used to hunt and gather. Wow. So the food quality went down quite badly. Never knew that. Well, no, there's an even better stat, which is so the average uh, height of humans. Um, uh, once the agricultural revolution is in full sway, is about five foot. Um, I think it's about five foot three. And then if you think about what happens over the next sort of 10,000, uh, not 10,000, that's too much, about six or 7,000 years, uh, like the, the cities being uh, being built, you know, uh, London and Edinburgh and, you know, uh, all of these places um, uh, becoming like really, really uh, commercial centres. And then by the middle of the 18th century, the amount of height that humans have recouped is an inch it's an inch and then since the middle of the 18th century we've we've jumped up another five inches so our food has uh improved now which is why we're um which is why we're you know getting taller with each generation that goes goes by we're probably not going to get much taller we've probably reached our maximum height oh, yeah i know well i can imagine how i feel um <laughs> But there's loads of there's loads of things like this. So um, our teeth stop fitting in our head around the agricultural revolution. So I don't know if I can't see you from here, but I've got slightly wonky teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, what are yours like, Ollie? They look quite straight. Yeah, all right. Yeah, my my brothers and my sisters were both completely. I can't remember which way around it was, but one had far too many teeth. I think they both had far too many teeth for their jaw. See, what is that about? All, how but can, I was all right. How can a you're... considerable amount of inbreeding in Oz family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my brother, who was also my cousin, and my dad. Don't try anything funny. What, not even my Essex girl joke? <laughs> Bloody good. How many Essex girls do you need to change light bulbs? Yeah, but you just think our DNA had millions and millions and millions and millions of years to get our bodies into pretty good shape and then all of a sudden like our teeth don't fit and uh, you know a a third of young people in this country are short-sighted if you're a hunter gathering but this is a great stat this i love this one if you're a um, a 19 year old um uh in seoul in south korea there is a 96.5 percent chance that you will be short-sighted I read, I read that the other day. It blew my mind. Yeah, ninety-six point five percent that you'll be short-sighted if you're a hunter-gathering. Um, uh, if you're a hunter-gathering, a nineteen-year-old male, you'd have to get two hundred and fifty of them to find one that was. So it's not. It's not just about genes. So this does have an effect. But the, um, for example, the eyesight thing is much more to do with urbanisation. Um, the 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 seed for that problem can be traced to about 4000 years ago in uh in you know in in where uh <laughs> sorry in where uh um in uh, in Uruk in Mesopotamia it's basically the moment that we decided that working indoors was a good idea was the beginning of the short-sightedness epidemic which 
if nothing's done about it, then by about 2050, it's anticipated half the world's population will need glasses for short-sightedness. Because if we don't have access to um, uh, daylight at the right moments for our development, just like if we don't have the right kind of um, uh, nutrition at key moments in our you know, in our adolescence, then we can't grow to our full height. Um, if you don't have access to daylight, if you're, um, if you're studying all the time and if you're in, indoors at school all the time and then you come home and you do more studying, if you're not playing out with your mates, um, it's much more difficult for your eyes to develop. And then if you're a 19-year-old male in Seoul, then, you know, there's a 96.5% chance that you'll be short-sighted. There's loads, there's loads of statistics like this. And so the, the Anthropocene or, or, or um, the environment is written. It's all over our bodies. Our, our bones, um, but bone density in, you know, before um, we did sedentary work, um, there was a, a trial done just this year that looked at the um, um, the arms of early agriculturalists, so early female uh, farmers, and they found that their the bone density in their arms was greater than that of female Olympic rowers. Well, what's going to happen? How do we get out of this mess? How do we stop all being short-sighted? What do I, I've got a, a small uh, son. Uh, he's 18 months old. How do I make sure that he doesn't grow up with brittle bones and, and the constant need for ever stronger glasses? I think, I mean, this is one of the things that draws uh, footnotes, my the running book, together with climate change, which is that I think in modern life we spend a lot of our time either ignoring or trying to convince ourselves that we don't actually have bodies. We don't really know what they're for. We don't, we just sort of, we use them to sort of carry around our brains. Um, so in the new book, in Primate Change, in, in uh, there's a lot of misery uh, in it. So there's a, there's a lot of these statistics where you just think, we're all going to die. Uh, but at the end of every chapter, there's a, there's a section that I've called... Um, we're not all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're not all going to die. There's a section that I've called Winding Back, and it's basically just looking at, at what's happened, um, you know, as a result of um, um, either the Industrial Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution, looking at what's happened to our to our backs, why everyone's got back pain or something like that, and then literally just saying, but if you do a little more of this, or if you do a little more of that, or if you stop doing this, then the, the chances for this pathology, um, you know, taking over your life in early, you know, middle age, uh, dropped to, you know, 2% or something. So the main thing, and this is the, this is what Footnotes was all about, which is about the value of um, movement. We've got a really, really long um, taxonomic classification, Animalia, Chordata, oh, I can't remember, Primates, Haplorini, something, 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 Homo sapiens. Um, but Animalia, Animalia means that that we move. We, we only have brains because we move. We don't need them. You know, plants don't have brains because they, they, they just sit there. So we only have brains because we move. And we are forgetting that that's what our bodies are for. That's what all the muscles are for. They're for movement. And every time we um, do some sedentary work, we are doing something that our body f- just thinks is really, really weird. Really, really weird. Sitting down is really weird. As, um, you know, we're all... With the, how many chairs are in this room? Yeah. Um, 
12? Uh, he hates our room, Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is... Must, must refresh the room for next <laughs> guest. Just even a picture of a pot plant would be nice. Um, so chairs, chairs have been around for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, but um, nobody, nobody sat in them. Um, chairs were a symbol of, of, um, of uh, grace and, you know, and of, of, of power. They were a symbol of uh, privilege. So they, they don't really exist. People, people have them, but they don't use them all that much. In houses in the sort of 17th century... Up to up to maybe the mid eighteenth century, they'd have and most normal houses would have uh, benches or a stool, but chairs don't really get started until middle of the nineteenth century. So in in the Bible there are no chairs, in Homer's um, Iliad and the Odyssey there are, there are no chairs, um, in King Lear I think the chairs are mentioned three times, but then he's a, he's a king. Uh, Hamlet, there are no chairs, and then Bleak House, which is you know Dickens's novel from eighteen fifty-two to three, one hundred and eighty-seven neighbours, even more than that. <laughs> I mean, it just gets worse. Don't I, I think Premier chairs... League football, <laughs> thousands of them. thousands of them. Yeah, I think chairs are, are one of the s- global symbols of the Anthropocene because. Um, I, I do this little game in the book where I talk about all the chairs that I've got in my house and uh, in, in the garden and uh, counting up my car, which I don't have a car anymore. But um, So it's, it's, there's probably about 50 or 60 billion chairs on the planet, something like that. You know, and they're really bad for us. They're really, really bad for us. But we love them. I love chairs. Me too. But so is what old 18-month-old kid, is, is, is basically what you're saying... Baby Ol's not allowed to stand up. No, sit huh? down. Baby Ol's <laughs> not allowed to sit down. I'm down with that. I, like, I, for the good of his generation, I'm prepared to inflict some really like Victorian levels of discipline on him. Daddy, all the other boys sit down. Shush! <laughs> all the other boys don't have to eat dirt, Daddy. <laughs> Shush! <laughs> Get on that treadmill. <laughs> Look at that picture of a field. <laughs> Oh, that's my little dude. What I think you should do with your son is make sure he plays outside. Make okay. sure he spends... We're doing that, we're doing good. that. Make sure, um, allow him to be a little bit dirty. I'm actively encouraging that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, 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 the, there's the wrong kind of being dirty and the right kind. The wrong kind would be, you know, like giving him raw bits of chicken to rub into his face. That would be... Not doing that. That's very much the wrong kind of dirty. So um, introducing children to the the, the, um, the kind of microbiota that that we would have met on the savannah is very good. They they've tied lots of. Um, sorry, is that like soil stuff that's in soil or what? Sorry, yeah, microbiota. Um, right. So if you were to count up all the cells in your body, only about twenty five percent of them would be you. Hey. Yeah, the rest of you is is bacteria. Yeah, but not you, Dave. You're much cleaner. Um, no. Thank you very much. I know some stuff about Dave <laughs> that seriously calls so that into question. <laughs> um, science is just getting uh, getting started on the ecosystems, the environment um, uh, of looking at the idea of the human body as an ecosystem. Um, so about three kilograms of your weight is made up of, of bacteria that is not you. That is hair. <laughs> Hang on, I don't. I genuinely don't understand that. What do you mean? It's not me. It's not you because it's organisms. So, um, it's, so, so, so cells have my genetic content in them. 
No, right, your cells, your your cells yeah. have your genetic, uh, your DNA. Well, most of your cells do. Some cells don't like. Anyway, that's a big thing. Okay. But, but bacteria. Right, so you have, have about twenty seven trillion cells, something like that, in your in your oh make your body. Twenty seven trillion. But in your gut, there's probably about a hundred trillion um, animals. Wow, or, organisms. That's so cool. And they do all sorts of they all do they do all sorts of weird and crazy things. So science is just beginning to get to know them. So your not your. Well, yeah, your your gut is one of the most complex ecosystems on the on the planet. I know, I know. <laughs> you, you, you ask Mrs. Ol, she will confirm that. <laughs> and um, but these these microbiota, these these hundred trillion things in your gut, right? So this is a weird one. Um, if you have, if you get two twins, you're going to like this. If you get two twins, one fat, one thin, so they're discordant for weight. Like uh, Danny DeVito and uh, Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. Yes. Oh, perfect. You're a very stupid person. You tell your brother he messes with me, he messes with my whole family. Then you have to harvest some of their microbiota. Okay, but they've got trillions of the stuff, so yeah, that's, that's you have all right. To, you have to get some of it out of them. Poo. Okay. Get that yeah. poo. You need to right. get that poo. Okay. Right. Now, yep. if you've got Danny, De- oh god, imagine if you've got Danny DeVito's and Arnold Schwarzenegger's poo. Oh, okay. And then you put their poo into some uh, clean mice. What that means is mice that have been genetically bred so that they don't have any microbiota. Um. So if one was fat and one was thin, um, one of the mice would stay the normal weight. The other one would get fat, even though they're given exactly the same diet and have to do exactly the same workouts. So the idea that that fat people are fat because of the amount of calories they eat starts to look like nonsense, and it looks more like um, there's a uh, they have a the 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 ecology that's in their their um, gut, the ecology of microbiota in their gut is driving them to eat certain kinds of foods that are not very probably not very good for them, but it's also it doesn't use the calories in the same way. So th- the thin mouse uh, is thin because it has certain, uh, a certain balance of microbiota and the fat one gets fat on the same diet because it has an imbalance. Um, w- it works with depression too. If you harvest the poo of de- depressed or happy people and put them in mice, they get happier. So these things, these are really... Dave's, Dave's face is a picture. <laughs> I reckon he's done it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Possibly not for that reason. <laughs> I just want to know what they thought they were doing the first time they did I that know. experiment. <laughs> I know, it's like the first person that milks a cow. It's like, what? <laughs> so, uh, I've forgotten again, Vibar. 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 You've forgotten the name of the person we've been speaking to for about an hour. That's right, Susan. Uh, Um, So uh, remind everyone what your books is um, and when your new one's coming out and how people can get in touch with you and keep up with all your crazy theories about bottoms. (laughs) Um, Right, so my running book is called Footnotes. Uh, Footnotes was mine. Um, uh, And then the publisher gave it a subtitle that's called it Footnotes, How Running Makes Us Human. Um, and that's available, uh, it's published by Ebre, it was published in 2016. Um, and my new book is going to be published by Octopus. Um, there's going to be a radio show about it as well on the on the World Service, don't you know? Um, 
and that's going to be published on the 20th of September 2018 uh, and that's called Primate Change How the World We Made is Remaking Us and it's going to be an absolute smash um, Are you on the Twitter? I am on the Twitter and I can be got by typing in the at Vibar V-Y-B-A-R-R Vibar, thank you so much for coming to talk to us it's been absolutely fascinating and um, good luck with your book It's been a pleasure, thank you very much indeed Right, you're a dick because I called him Vibar and then you like were correcting me and then told me to get away from the mic saying, no, 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 it's V-Bar. And he was like, no, it's Vibar. But he laughed at me when I said V-Bar. Yeah, because you're an idiot. I know it's because I'm an idiot. <laughs> He's got a very confusing name. Well, anyway, thank you very, very much to Vibar Krieg and Reed for coming on to this podcast and telling us all about his books, what he wrote. It was very interesting, wasn't it? Oh, it was very interesting. I really like it when we get guests on because you just talk and talk and talk and you think, ah, this stuff's interesting. Uh, it was like that Christine Berry talking about neoliberalism. Go back and listen to episode 109. <laughs> very good <laughs> to listen to that one. Very good. Uh, so uh, you can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought of the show and what you thought of, of Vibar's uh, Vibaring. Uh, you can email us at hello at sustainybabble.fish. You can find us on Facebook, just search Sustainababble, or we're on Twitter at the Babble Wagon. And thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore, who does the music that starts, ends, and intertwinkles this podcast, and to Arthur Stovall for the logo, What Adorns It. What are you looking at me funny like that for? wondering whether you know as we record this in may whether or not we've got around to making the merch available yet <laughs> yes all right look i promise i promise we'll have made the merch available by the time this comes out right uh, i'm off to do some running and to look for a poo transplant uh what about you uh, i'm off to watch kylie and become increasingly sedentary until i just stop moving how's that good bye bye Right, it's us again. Hello. Um, it's, it, us, it's us in the present day, not yeah, the past. Now, like yeah. September 2018, the future. Um, and we're here to tell you excitingly, so excitingly, that we have got. T shirts! Yeah. Nothing else yet, but we've got T-shirts. Oh, you mean for for sale? Yes, T-shirts with Sustainababble logos on them. Oh my word! And and some with Sustainababble words on them, oh. and in and in different colours. Yeah, grey ones and green ones and white ones and tan ones and black ones and black ones and and ones for the ladies and one for the gentlemen and yes. um yeah T-shirts. You can go on our website. Go on our website. There is a section called t-shirts yes where you can click and there will be t-shirts yes and then you can buy them uh and because uh, we've got very helpful listeners we've managed to find somewhere uh called t-mill where they don't all make you know like a million t-shirts that sit in our flat fridge they just make the ones that you order so it's all very good and it's all 100 organic cotton all the rest of it made in the uk powered by renewable energy so literally there is no reason for you not to spend all of your pocket money on t-shirts buy shit you don't need buy, buy shit you don't, don't need. need right good Okay, buy it. What are, you, what are you still doing here? Go and buy t-shirts. Buy them now. Crash the site. Buy too many. Buy too many Christmas t-shirts. Christmas isn't very far away. No, I'd like to fill your stock. Oh.